Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. We made it to another weekend and in the delightful month of February, no less. Coming up, we'll get the lowdown on what's happening with book bans lately. There really is a fight about what should our society look like? How should our children be educated? What does it mean to be a good citizen? And we don't agree on those things. Plus, a whole new series all about nerdy jobs. First up, knitting pattern designers. You could learn something new about knitting every day for your life and never learn at all. But first, it's our chance to discuss all the weird and wonderful things from the week that was. With us today, we have two of my favorite co-workers. Patrick Smith is a criminal justice reporter at WBEZ. Pat, hello. Hey, Greta. We also have Mariah Wolfel, who's a political reporter at WBEZ. Mariah, hello. Hello. Okay, so I want to start again this week with Spotify, actually, because a growing list of musicians and podcasters and doctors and some users are fired up because the streaming service is continuing to allow Joe Rogan to spread COVID vaccine misinformation. Spotify did issue a statement. They promised to flag any content that has to do with COVID-19 and like direct listeners to official sources about the virus. Um, Roxanne Gay has pulled her podcast off the platform. She is not the only person. Um, I myself am a very smug Apple Music user. I have been for quite some time. Usually I'm not that (laughs) smug about it, though. Um, I'm curious, like, Mariah, do you use Spotify? Yeah, yeah, I use Spotify. I got my first iPhone, like, four or five years ago. And so Spotify is, is my main jam. Have you thought about like what it would take to extricate yourself from it? Or is that just like too complicated to even go there? I don't know. Yeah, this conversation has me thinking about whether I should think a little bit more seriously about it. Obviously, like at the heart of this is is the fact that the exact misinformation that Joe Rogan is is spreading and has spread has led to the death of like countless people, you know, that it claims that the, the vaccine is gene therapy or whatever conspiracy you want to plug in there. And so, you know, I would, I would love to stand with, um, with Neil Young and, and Joni Mitchell. And I think it's, I think it's like great that they are making those symbolic stands. I, I personally am like, I don't know how much of a difference I can make by right. not using right. Spotify. I still use Instagram. I still use Facebook, all right. of the evil, you know, apps that we have in this world. And maybe that's kind of the wrong attitude to take, but that's that's kind of where I'm at. I don't know, though. I get that. It's sort of like how how much does conscientious consumption like can that even exist in this day and age? And to your point, too, like, why should this be on us to make these decisions, you know? Uh, Pat, are you a Spotify guy? I am a Spotify guy. I uh, I'm on like a family plan with my sisters and 
So I actually did the cowardly thing because it's under my sister's name of just messaging her and being like, should we do this? And kind of and when and and uh, and since she decided not to uh, to take us off of it, I've decided that that's that goes for me, too. Uh, you consulted with the head of your household in this context. And this is what's happening. <laughs> yes, precisely. I mean, it's tough, you know, uh, because it's like Spotify is not just giving Joe Rogan a platform like they he, they you know, they're paying him a ton of money. Right, right. right to be one of their exclusive, like, main pieces of content that they present to the world. <sighs> yeah. I mean, you know, I, I hey, I'm a, I'm a white dude over 30. I like Neil Young a lot. I definitely uh, <laughs> miss his music on the service. And, uh, and, and you know, hey, it'd be great if this is, like, raising a little bit of awareness for someone out there that uh, that what Joe Rogan is saying about the vaccines is not based in science and is super dangerous. I know... It seems to us like that's out there everywhere, and it is. So maybe this doesn't make a difference, but uh, maybe there's like two other white guys in their 30s who are like, wait, Neil Young thinks Joe Rogan's an idiot? Interesting. I don't know. Sure. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point, actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's such an interesting one because I feel like in this and in so many things these days, it's just sort of like – Everyone has their like they've taken the stand and everybody's just going to double down. You know, it seems like there's so little room for like, you know, maybe I should reassess like how my values fit into this. You know, the other thing is I don't want to play the like, uh, you know, I don't want to. It's not like everybody's a hypocrite or anything like this is a good stand. And, and if anything, if I support it, I'm being a hypocrite for not leaving Spotify. But like Neil Young almost immediately after this posted some something on his social media about like how you can catch him at Apple or Amazon music. And it's like, I know that Jeff Bezos isn't an (laughs) anti-vaxxer, but he's not a force for good in the world. Right. So it's not like, oh, what a principled stand. And not that Apple is a force for good. Right. Exactly. That's the thing is like, if we're just picking like lesser of evils, like what does it really matter? What does it matter in the end? You know? (laughs) (sighs) Wow. I I, 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 I kind of agree with the idea that there's like no moral consumption under capitalism. At the same time, I think that, that, you know, our consumer choices are important. Yes. Even they can't be the only thing you, you do to try to make the world better, but they, they are, there is value to them. Well, that's very nice. I like that very much. Um, So another big story this week, again, speaking of capitalism is about Wordle, which is the very charming lo-fi guess a word a day in six tries game. It was bought by the New York Times this week for an amount they said was in the low seven figures. Mariah, have you been playing this? It really has exploded, at least in my circle, in the last even just like couple weeks. Yeah, I like it. I don't play it every single day, but the platform is super nice and easy to use. I like that I don't have to download an app. It's just like a web browser. Yes. It's not, you know, another thing in my life that I'm like getting notifications about. It's there when I <laughs> yeah. want it. Um Well, the fact that it's only one a day, I think, makes it so, like, antithetical to so much of the way we consume content these days, right? Where it's like, you spend a couple of minutes on it, you're done. And then, yeah, like, maybe you'll remember to do it tomorrow or whatever. But, like, that's it. You can't, like, accidentally become consumed by it all day, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Have you been doing it on a regular basis? Yeah, it's super fun. I I start my mornings with it now. I'm saying that, like, oh, it's such an... A lovely tradition I have. It's been going on for two and a half weeks, but uh, 
yeah, you know, and it's it's good to 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 start the day with like a brain teaser and get your it's it's better than surfing uh, Twitter. Yes. So it prevents me from surfing Twitter for like three minutes. Yeah. After yeah. Up, and the, then that it's to... your three minutes of Wordle Zen, you know. <laughs> yeah. You guys are fast. I take like forty five minutes. Okay. Th- maybe it's maybe it's ten. Maybe it's five or ten. <laughs> yeah. Do you think you'll keep playing it? Once it is in New York, like, I don't know, this is an interesting one, I think, because it makes total sense that New York Times games would be like, oh, look at this amazing thing that so many people have gotten really into lately. It's obviously very easy to maintain and make happen. We should buy it. But I mean, a lot of people are bummed that, you know, I mean, eventually this thing is going to go behind a paywall. Do you think you'll keep playing it then, Mariah? Uh, no, no, I don't think so. Fair enough. <laughs> There's part of me that's like, well, maybe that would be the the extra incentive to sign up for that that New York Times games thing mm-hmm. because I've always wanted to be more of a um a gamey guy, more of a crossword guy. Mm-hmm. However, I feel like by the time they put it behind a paywall, my you know the Wordle craze will be over, and my my I'm, I bet I will have stopped playing naturally before it actually mm-hmm. goes. You'll have a like gone back to your just mornings of scrolling Twitter and being miserable. Yeah, I mean, there's like a, a version of myself where it's like, no, I'm going to go back to doing uh, uh, um, Duolingo in the morning, but oh, probably nice. no, it'll just yeah. be. Yeah, well, Patrick, you know, do you think do you think you'd be a uh, like a better person if you were doing crosswords? Is that an aspiration that you just that you that you think would would make would it boost your self confidence? That word will well, maybe get that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. I want to become a better person. You know, what? I'm going to get. I'm going to make you feel bad for saying that and say that there's a history of dementia in my family, and keeping your brain active through crossword is a good way to try to prevent it from happening. Yeah, it sure is. Okay. It sure is. Okay. Same over here, right. Pat. So yeah, let's do some crosswords together. We could work on a Sunday yeah. puzzle together. We could do that. Okay. Um, okay, so now is when we venture into territory that is extremely not my expertise, but there were a couple of different football stories from this week that caught my attention. Um, Patrick, you are an NFL fan, so, you know, not to be like super gender stereotypey here, but we, we're going to need you to walk us through this a little bit. <laughs> um, so Tom Brady announced this week after 22 years in the game that he is stepping down. He's going to retire. Um, he's arguably like one of the best players in the league, right? Uh, yeah, yes, definitely. I don't know that he's the best quarterback anymore, but he's definitely the best player in NFL history. I think most people would agree with that. Do you think he's kind of like the Voldemort of football or is that just because I hang out with enough people who kind of hate Tom Brady? Hmm. Oh, do you mean because people hate him that makes him the Voldemort? Yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) yeah, kind of, I I guess. I don't know what else you would mean because we're saying his name. So you obviously didn't mean that we don't, that nobody will say his name. Um, (laughs) Yeah, kind of. Uh, The funny thing is, like, I'd say it's interesting because in the last, uh, you know, this year, uh, Aaron Rodgers, who's the quarterback of the Packers, revealed himself to be um, uh, an anti-vax troll. And Ben Roethlisberger from the Steelers uh, retired this year. And that reminded everybody that he's been multiple times uh, credibly accused of sexual assault. And so I think... People did hate Tom Brady, and now this year has been a reminder that, like, just being kind of a try-hard loser, who's also actually the greatest winner ever, uh, is not the worst thing that an NFL player can be. So I feel like he's going out on a high note on a on a couple of different in a couple of different ways. Interesting, Mariah. Do you know of him as someone who's sort of reviled, also, or is that just me? I I know him as someone who's like reviled by some New Englanders, I think is my understanding because of him leaving the Patriots and and going to Tampa. But 
Um, but no, I'm definitely not like plugged in. I, I think I tune out when people talk about football in general. <laughs> yeah. So even if I had friends who were talking about it, I would like use it as a chance to go to the bathroom. <laughs> like if we were hanging out. <laughs> I know, right? So the other big football story from this week is that the Washington football team, which has been kind of nameless for the last couple of years after their original name was deemed racist, has announced their new official name. They're going to be the Washington Commanders. Mariah, what do you think? Is this like remotely interesting to you, this whole story? Um, yeah, I, I initially, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Obviously I love it. Not. no, I love it. I love it. <laughs> um, no, I think it was interesting that I read like in, in 2013, I think the owner of the team was like, we will never, the name will never change, hmm. you know, um, capital N E V E R. And then, and then you see this, I, I think it's just another instance of the way that that public pressure has changed, um, you know, changed minds in the past two years, uh, as we've seen many, many people like rethink things about their brands and their names. Patrick, what's your take? I mean, it is it's like, yes, maybe maybe sort of a meaningless symbolic gesture. But I don't know. It's also, I think, kind of an important symbolic gesture when it comes to like the reckoning our country needs to do about, you know, our racist, like pretty recent history. Yeah, it's it's way, way better than uh, the last name that was a racial slur. Yeah. And it is important that they change their name. Mm -hmm. Uh, But let's not let that let you know, let's not let that take us away from the fact that this is a terrible name for a football team. (laughs) It sounds like a name in a movie when they couldn't get the rights to a real football (laughs) team. The Commanders. Oh, the Washington Commanders. Like, it's it's awful. Like, it's it's such a stupid name. It's so stupid. I, I do think it's, like, very on the nose for a football team. It's, it's yeah. just, like, very aggressive. I think it's, aggressive. it's, like, hashtag take command. Like, oh, really? Is that is that what you want to do? That that makes, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I would do that, too. But I'm also, like, I, I read that they didn't want to, to be the Warriors, which was something because, that they were contemplating because it's you know too closely aligns with like native i think it was like quote native american themes and aggression but like is commanders that far off i don't know i mean it is it's different it's different than the warriors yeah how how were the the names they were choosing between warriors and commanders those are like the two most generic names i've, I've I ever heard in my entire life I, I would like like you know the pups or like the Cubs, you know, I like the Cubs. Why can't it be something a little bit less on the nose? Just more Cubs. <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, Mariah, Patrick, thank you both so much. This was very fun. Thanks, Greta. Thank you. So much fun. So much fun. Across the United States, parents and lawmakers are trying to get books taken off library shelves and out of school curriculum. Efforts are happening in places like Texas, Tennessee, Oklahoma, and Wyoming. Books like Toni Morrison's Beloved, George Matthew Johnson's All Boys Aren't Blue, and Art Spiegelman's graphic history book Mouse are all being called inappropriate. What's behind the decisions and why? Here to help us understand what's happening is someone who literally wrote a book about it. Emily Knox is the author of Book Banning in 21st Century America. She's also an associate professor at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign and maybe the perfect person to put these efforts into context for us. For example, is there an actual uptick in book bans or is this just getting a lot of coverage because of social media? Oh, there's an actual uptick. 
if you look at uh, anything coming out of the American Library Association's Office for Intellectual Freedom, they say they get about five challenges being reported a day, <laughs> and they used to get um, about five a week. Wow. And we also know that challenges are underreported. They've always been underreported. So we actually do not know how many challenges are happening across the country. So yeah, is challenges a better word to use than bans? So yes, um, I use the term challenge. I know the book is book banning. That's really, so it's catchy. (laughs) (laughs) I really actually talk about challenges. So this is when someone says, I have a problem with this book. I'd like you to reconsider it. Generally, we ask people, um, there's policies that say, you know, please fill out this form, a committee that reviews it. But the act of bringing that is called a challenge, not a ban. A ban is an outcome. Emily says there are four main options after a book is challenged, aside from just ignoring the challenge altogether, I guess. You could redact the controversial material from the book. You could require parental approval for certain books. You could put a book meant for kids in the adult section, or you could just remove it entirely. In a Q&A for Slate recently, Emily pointed out that book bans aren't just a conservative reaction to controversial topics. Liberals have banned books, too. We all believe in the Western wealthy world that reading is something that can really change who you are as a person, that knowledge can be harmful. And so the way you see this more on the left are issues about stereotypes. Um, Huckleberry Fenn, of course, for the N-word, those are challenges are often from Black parents who were uncomfortable with how their children would be asked to talk about being Black in America because they were reading this book. The one I talked about in the Slate article is about a turf book that was all over library world. Turf being trans-occlusionary radical feminist, yeah. Yes, that the book would cause harm to trans kids, that it would um, make it so that parents who are uncomfortable or against their children questioning their gender identity would get solace from this book. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, like that, it's not that that's not true. Yes, it is possible that that book might do that, but you don't actually know why someone is buying a book or looking at a book or reading a book. Maybe some kid wants to know how to respond to their parents saying this to them. I would like to buy, I would like to read this book because it's become so controversial. I don't really want to give that lady any money. And so I'd want to get it from my library. Right. And I'd like to see it for myself and figure out my own opinions about it. Yeah. That's an interesting argument for sure. But it is absolutely true that books can cause harm. And I will also say, you know, there are books that just kind of sear in your mind. So in Beloved, you know, I've never forgotten reading that book. Yeah. I think about that with Night, reading that when I was in high school. And like that fucked me up. For sure. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, they're, they just stick with you. Um, but to me, that's part of understanding what it means to be human. You know, I, I think that's important to understanding how people have lived, what has happened to them um, and their lives is really reading great works of art, <laughs> you know, uh, seeing great works of art. 
One thing that's been happening since the recent spate of book challenges is that more people across the U.S. are buying the challenged books. And we wanted to know if that makes an impactful difference. Emily says, sure, it's always good to support books, especially when it comes to supporting books by authors with marginalized identities. But the answer isn't that simple. Does it really do anything for the kid in Tennessee, though, or the kid in Missouri? Not really. If it's not in the curriculum, I mean, I can't imagine being a Jewish kid in that. Not, I don't know if there are any Jewish kids in that town in Tennessee. Sure. But, you know, what does it say to them? It, it's really this idea that, like, your history is so painful that we can't even talk about it. Right. Like, right. we can't even bring it up in school to learn about it. I, I just don't. I know they say, like, well, there are other ways. And then I'm like, well, are they reading Night? Like, have right. they read that book? You know, like, <laughs> yeah. like what are they doing? Yeah. Um, and, of course, that's in some ways the point. The point is to say our values aren't reflected in this book. And so you can see how it's extremely alienating oh to those God. kids. For sure. But I, I always say that these happen, these things happen in the realm of the symbolic because, of course, you can get the book anywhere. But they do say something concrete. There really is a fight about what should our society look like how should our children be educated? What does it mean to be a good citizen? And we don't agree on those things. Now, these are big questions, and the answers are probably going to be super complicated. But Emily does recommend if you're up for it, you should totally run for local school board or another office in local government. And if that is extremely not your jam, something else you could do is just try to read as many different kinds of books as possible. In just a minute, our new series on Nerdy Jobs starts off with a conversation with three amazing knitters. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to the Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. We are starting a short and sweet little series here that we have been calling Nerd Jobs. This month, we thought it would be fun to try on a few different hats and talk to some remarkable people doing remarkable niche things every single day. Today, I think that most knitters are knitters because we love squishy. <laughs> that's right. We're going to talk to knitters. Plumper, like plumps another one. We like plumpy and we like squishy. And I personally love, like for me, it's all about texture and color and bringing those worlds together and wrapping myself up in it. Like professional knitters. I'm Andrea Mowry of Drea Renee Knits and I write knitting patterns. My name is Sophia Tally. I am the drunk knitter on Instagram and that's my website, really professional. 
My name is Jennifer Berg. So I am native knitter um, and I'm Navajo or Diné. Um, that's the tribe I come from. Yat A Jennifer Berg Yanishia. My clans are Wunagafni Nishle, the Lagana Bushes Chin, Tachini Deshich A, and Beishbich At Deshanele. These three design knitting patterns. That means they write out detailed instructions for how to make a cute stripy pair of socks or giant blanket or cozy sweater or hat. You could learn something new about knitting every day for your life and never learn at all. It just doesn't matter if you mess up because you can unravel it until that yarn falls apart, you know? And so it's kind of, it gives us the freedom to be the faulty humans that we all are. Andrea learned from her grandma as a kid. A friend taught Jennifer as an adult. Sophia found some old school YouTube videos when she was a teenager. Today, they all sell their patterns on sites like Ravelry, where a pattern for sweater usually costs between $5 and $10. They all bring unique elements of their own stories to their designs. My goal was always to make everything I do, like, inclusive, um, not just with image, you know, with being an African-American woman, but also um, make all of my designs so that, like, so that way a beginner knitter who does not have, you know, the funds to make this giant, you know, piece, like, they could come out and make a sweater for 10 bucks. Like, I have a cardigan called a scrapper cardigan. Scrap yarn is just leftover yarn for those who aren't yarnies, where you just use all of your scrap yarn to create a cohesive piece. My grandma had, like, spun, you know, spun wool her whole life. My great-grandmother was the weaver, and she started a store out on um, I-40, like, when there was just Route 66, and she'd run down with her weavings and, you know, sell them. And now it's still there. My family stores a fourth-generation store, and I think that's where a lot of, like, my design and everything comes from, is from just being immersed in so much pottery and designs from local people bringing them in. The knitting site Ravelry has been around almost 15 years now, and it has more than 9 million members. It's where lots of knitwear designers sell their patterns, and a lot of knitters post pictures of the stuff they've made. The sense of community around the craft has completely exploded in the best possible way. So I went very much from, I didn't, I did not know a single knitter besides my grandma, um, to now I just feel like we're everywhere. Growing up, I've always knitted and I always crocheted, but I never met anyone outside of my family that loved that, that looked like me. It's a really meaningful job because um, it it has given me an outlet and like, like I said, a platform to be able to speak about Danette people. And like in, in most of my patterns, I try to not only, you know, express how much I love this, but also educate to make sure that people understand that Danette people exist today. Because I think a lot of people think that we're like mythical people, but I'm like, no, I'm, I'm just a normal person in, you know, in the world doing the same things you are eating at Taco Bell and, you know. <laughs> but I love, especially in the past couple of years, the fact that those of us who haven't had those knitters in our communities and actually meet up and just feel not alone <laughs> in this craft that we tend to end up getting really obsessed with. Which is to say, if you haven't started knitting yet, maybe this pandemic winter is the perfect time to try it. It's a very fun group of people, I promise. We're the best. The world always needs more knitters. 
We heard from Andrea Maori, who is Drea Renee Knits on Instagram, and Jennifer Berg, who's Native Knitter on Instagram, and Sophia Talley, who is the Drunk Knitter. Hey, now seems like a great time to mention that we have a virtual crafting event coming up. It's on Tuesday, February 15th at 7 Central. We're calling it Hearts and Crafts. Get it? It's going to be on Zoom. And you are invited. Just bring something crafty if you have something you're working on. Otherwise, just come to hang out with me and my friend Shannon Downey. She's also known as Badass Cross Stitch on Instagram. We're going to talk about craftivism and community building and creativity. It's going to be fun. Sign up and get a Zoom link at wbez.org slash events. The show is produced by me and Anna Bauman. Our executive producer is Brendan Banizak. We will see you next Friday. Nice, squishy, and plumpy. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.